Do you remember Plato's work, Symposium? Yep, that took place at a drinks party. Philosopher David Hume said that drinking was an antidote to philosophical depression, and Kierkegaard wrote an entire treatise on wine. Our guest today is another student of philosophy who found her calling in the drinks industry. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. I am so pleased to have my friend and fellow drinks journalist, Millie Milliken, on the program today. Not only does she have nearly 10 years of food, drink, and events writing experience in print and online, but in 2022, she was awarded both the IWSC Spirits Communicator of the Year Award, as well as the Allen Lodge Young International Drinks Writer of the Year Award. Needless to say, she is a great writer. How did she become specialized in drinks? Well, I'll let her tell you. Of course, you know, you can always find this episode as well as all the other Lush Life episodes, as well as a whole lot more on YouTube. Just head to youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. That's youtube.com slash at Lush Life Manual. Now, on to Millie. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm glad we finally got to connect. Yes, 100%. I feel like every time we've seen each other at an event, we've said, we need to do this. So here we are, finally. Finally, finally. It's great. Now, I always start with where people grew up and how they got into drinks and all of that. And I thought, if you don't mind, that we could start there as well today. Of course, not a problem. I've got quite an interesting kind of beginning as well, which is always always good to pull out of the bag in these sorts of situations. So I was born in The Hague in the Netherlands, and I spent my oh. very kind of early years in Sarawak, which is in Borneo, so Southeast Asia. And I was there for quite a few years and then moved to the UK and grew up most of my teenage years in Surrey. So London was always on the horizon. It was 30-minute train journey away. So any opportunity I could, I'd be popping on a train with my friends coming to London. And I went to university in London, obviously moved here. I've been here 15 years now. And I went to King's College London and studied philosophy and graduated with that. And obviously was like, right, he wants to give me a job. No one wanted to give me a job. So I ended up actually... Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. (laughs) Hold on. There's there's tons in there. Tons in there. So hold on, hold on. We will get to the first job in a second. Cool. So about your family living overseas, was it because of your one of your parents' work? Yeah, I would it, was, it was work. Yes. So both my parents worked traveling the world, really. They both, like my dad's from Norwich. My mom is from a village in Scotland called Tilly Coultry. And they both left when they were relatively young, young adults, and sort of traveled the world with work and finally met each other where they were abroad working for the same company. And that was the beginning, really. And we moved in between a few places as well when we were little, but my brother was also born in the Netherlands. So they, they were there for a while, had me, and then made the move back to, back to Southeast Asia where they'd spent a bit of time beforehand. So those years are very... Very formative years. I remember them probably clearer than a lot of my later years as a, as a child. I think just because they were so specific, very different, and it felt felt like a completely different life away. And I've never been back 
since I was hoping to go in 2020 and then obviously that was scuppered. So it's a big tick list on mine to to go back to where I grew up and see my old house and the areas that we used to go and go and play and see friends and things like that. So yeah, it was a very, very interesting and colourful childhood. Lots of fresh fruit on the trees. I remember picking Ranby tans off the trees. And every time I see one now in London, obviously they don't taste anything like the same, but just those <laughs> sorts of flavor memories are, are very vivid whenever I go back to that part of the world. So yes, it was it was a great, great start to life, I would say. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've actually never met anyone who was brought up there. So you're the uh, first. There we go. Yes, exactly. When Now, when you came back, you, you said you studied philosophy. What were you thinking? I know, look, my dad always said, you don't go to university to learn a trade. You learn how to think. Exactly. But was there something that you thought that you were going to do afterwards with the philosophy degree? Or were you just studying it because you loved philosophers and philosophy? Well, I always wanted to be an actress. So that was always the the dream. And I very quickly did a few courses in it and sort of came to the realization that it was probably a very unrealistic dream. And I always preferred the actual writing about theatre or doing reviews at school for, for theatre things. So I figured, okay, I'm quite good at the writing side. And then I just started taking philosophy at A-level and absolutely fell in love with it. I'm an atheist, so I was coming at it from that point of view. But I've got a lot of religion in my family. So I had an idea of those different sort of spiritual conversations and a different mindset. And so I just thought it was extremely interesting. I always wanted to come to London and they did not just pure philosophy. I did things like ethics, we did philosophy and literature. There were a lot of arts-based courses in there. So I kind of thought, well, I kind of do want to do something maybe to do with writing. I actually went back to my old school records and found that I'd written that I wanted to be a journalist when I was 11 or something. I have no recollection of this. But there was obviously something in my brain, and I think that did definitely carry through into into why I chose to do that at university. And, you know, it was only eight hours uh, of lecture times a week. The rest of it was study time. But, you know, the first year, not much studying went on. And then second year and third year, I kind of pulled my socks up and thought, right, I should probably should probably get a good get a good grade out of this, which I did, thankfully. And I met some amazing people in there, people who wanted to go into the church, um, fellow sort of atheists people from all different walks of life and religion. And it was, it was, I think, a really great experience from a cultural point of view and talking to, talking to people about their, their ideologies and their thoughts and their opinions. And I always say, when I look back now, philosophy is basically when you're studying it, you're looking at two sides of an argument and arguing why one person thinks one thing and another person thinks another. And that's kind of what you do as a journalist. You always weigh up two sides of an argument and help communicate those to an audience and then come to some kind of conclusion at the end. And looking back now, the, the correlation between what I do now in terms of writing and what I did at university, I don't think I'd be as good a writer now if I hadn't have gone through all of that when I was at university. So it's actually stood me in very good stead. And I met some great people. So I can't argue with that. Yeah. Yes, I'm sure it was. It was learning a completely different way to think. Yeah. Kind of like law, probably. You yeah. know, yeah. It just it's a different way to form an argument. Yeah. It was definitely a heavy research as well. Spent spending hours in the library looking at t ancient texts and 
you know, literally having to read War and Peace and, you know, drilling into different arguments and things like that. And I think that research element as well, again, has somehow managed to, I don't know whether it's something it was in my subconscious, but having to go through that research process is obviously something that I have to do now in, in my day-to-day work. So it's, it definitely gave me those skills and speaks of maybe an inquisitive mind, which is kind of what you have to have really if you want to be a journalist. So yeah, it was, it was massive. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it was great. Now, now I interrupted you to go back. So when you graduated, you said no one was going to give you a job. Yeah. Or you couldn't find a job as a philosopher, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And I didn't want one as a philosopher either. But yeah, I kind of went out into the world. I'd lived in London for three years, thought I was pretty, you know, streetwise, I was ready to go. And it was really difficult to find a job. I, I think I was also of the generation where it was quite difficult when you came out of university and you were always taught at school that you did your A-levels and then you went to university, but they never really prepared me, I don't think, for what the next step was. So I came out of it and I thought, look, I always worked in hospitality as a teenager. I worked in a cafe in my kind of local, the biggest local town. I worked summer, I worked Saturday shifts, Sunday shifts from about 15 up to up to sort of 21 in and out of uni, just in the summer holidays and things like that. So I thought, you know, I really enjoy working in hospitality. I think I'm pretty good at it from a maybe cafe sort of sandwich serving perspective, coffee making, tea making. So pulling pints as well, pouring wine, I could do all of that. So I ended up getting a job at the Coach and Horses uh, in Soho on Greek Street, one of the most famous pubs in London, which at the time I sort of thought, meh, you know, whatever, that's fine. Now I kind of look back and think I can't believe I actually worked there. And I helped run the vintage tea room upstairs. So my mornings would consist of ironing tablecloth with a little cup of loose leaf tea at the top of the window open, letting uh, guys in with the barrels for the beer downstairs, running up and downstairs, serving tea, afternoon teas, helping bake the cakes, helping make the sandwiches. And I did that in between a lot of interning. So that kind of paid my way. I did some work for a sort of antique collectibles website called Vintage Seekers. And I was writing the descriptions for things like first edition Bond books. I'm a massive Bond fan. So that was perfect for designer watches that were antiques and having to write all the copy for the website, doing that in the times when I wasn't working at the, at the pub. And that's kind of how I basically first started getting published because I was taking on as a lot of people do, writing for free for people back in the day. And yeah, anyone who would have me, I was a theatre editor for a student newspaper. So I did all that for free, but it meant I could go to the theatre for free and write about it in the newspaper and doing other things. I was very into collectibles. I still am. My flat is full of bits and bobs and strange things from times past and I always loved that so I did quite a lot of writing for vintage magazines as well on my collections on collectibles on people who maybe lived as if they lived in the 1950s and things like that so that's kind of where I really dipped my toe in, into the writing world and you know had had to do those things for free to to get going really it's it's a difficult one it's chicken and egg you know you want to get published but how do you get published if you don't have a, a portfolio to show for it so that was that was a good, a good sort of six, six to eight months of me writing for free and, and working in the pub, which looking back is probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. 
It was brilliant, really good fun. Met some characters and it was fantastic being in Soho sort of 12, 13 years ago. And incredible. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm six to eight months of working for free really doesn't sound all that long mm-hmm. when you look back on it. I'm sure it must have seemed, oh my God, this is going on forever. Why do I have to write this for free again? But in the scheme of things now, especially to have all that writing experience in six to eight months and then jump into something that's paid is pretty good. Yeah. And it really, it was every day. I remember thinking, oh, why don't I just apply for a proper office job that everyone was telling me I should do? Just get a, just get a temping job in an office and you'll work it out. Like, don't worry about it. And I was working in the pub and I loved working in the pub. And I just thought, no, I don't want to do that. I, I love working here. It was a vintage tea room, so it fit my kind of what I liked doing and the music and the, and the clothes and everything. And I just thought, no, I'm going to give this a, a proper go. It was it was really hard work. But I, I met a lot of people doing the free writing as well because there were other people doing the same as me. And a friend who was working on the newspaper that I was working on had just finished a temping job at the Good Food Guide. And he just said, look, I've just finished this. They're looking for someone else to temp. Do you want to go and interview for it? And I did. And that was my first proper paid editorial job. And that was that was the beginning. That was it. What were you writing? Oh, gosh. Well, I was writing a lot of chef profiles. So I joined when people were sending in for the awards, for the ratings. So the reviewers were going out. And I was my main job was to write about the chefs, about the restaurants for the website. So quite a lot of copywriting again. I was also, this was, it doesn't feel that long ago, you say 13 years ago, but that was when people still sent menus in physically. They weren't scanned in, they weren't PDFs. So I was in charge of the post and we had this huge filing cabinet. And every time you opened one of the drawers, it just melt of like all of these different types of food because all the menus had had some gravy dripped on them or something else and they were just carrying all these incredible smells with them but I was in charge of filing the menus and also inputting all of the menus in there and then doing interviews with chefs for for the editorial side of things so I was kind of halfway between admin assistant and starting to write and it was a temping job so it wasn't paying much money but it didn't really matter at that stage I kind of thought right this is this is it. I'm in. And I don't know whether it was complete coincidence, but I fell into a food related publication, whether it, if it had been a music one, maybe, maybe I've gone that way. But I think maybe my love of the hospitality industry and having worked, worked in it perhaps made me feel a bit more of an affinity towards it. And that was really the start of my career and the very beginning of me writing about the food industry and the restaurant industry, which is what I started doing before I moved into drinks. Now, before writing about chefs and and hospitality, had you, even in your job, had you ever thought while you were writing that, you know, this could be something that you write about? Did you ever feel that those two worlds had the potential of colliding before you got that job? No, every, every other piece of writing that I had done, none of it was to do with food. It was all to do with the theatre, which is kind of my first port of call, because right. my first, I thought, you know, it's like if you can't do teach, if you can't be an actress, you know, write about it. So I, that was my first step into it. And I think had I not got that job with a good food guide, I'd have probably continued on trying to do more theatre writing. So 
I think I would have gone that way or I was writing about vintage and collectibles. There wasn't a lot of money in writing about that right. though because the, the, there's just not the amount of publications and the media outlets for it. So I, yeah, I honestly think if I hadn't got that job, I wouldn't have even fathomed that I could be writing about the world that I'd spent quite a few years working in. It just hadn't really, really clicked for me that that would be a possibility. So it was, yeah, it was a massive eye opener and it opened up this entire world. And I started realizing that, okay, this could be, uh, this could be a viable, a viable career. And turns out it is. So that worked out very well. <laughs> yes, very, very well. We wouldn't be here today if it hadn't, you hadn't taken exactly. that new guy job. Now, what do you think was it about it? that you just fell in love with or continued before moving specifically into drinks? We'll get into that in a sec. Was it the going to the restaurants, meeting the chefs, or just being in more in hospitality and seeing a different side of it? Yeah, I think I always really respected what the chefs did. There was a conversation at one stage. You know, I'd finished uni and went home and my parents said, right, what do you want to do? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. I have no idea what I want to do. I, I think it goes back to that whole idea of at school you're taught to, you know, you do those career chats and you're either going to be, oh, you're, you're well supposed to be a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or a nurse or something like that. You never get given those options. So even things like a chef wasn't on the, on the table, so to speak. But I remember talking to my dad and he said, well, what about becoming a chef? Like, is that something you'd like to do? Because I love cooking and I lo loved working in that world. And I, so I always had that respect for chefs and I always loved talking to them. I found them so interesting and I've always loved talking to people and this industry is very people based. You know, when you're writing about it, 90% of the time you're writing about people rather than anything else. Obviously you might write about the food, but it was a lot to do with who was cooking it and where you were eating it. So I think that's what drew me to it and you meet meet all these people from different backgrounds and people who didn't go through maybe the same steps that you did leading up to that chance they might have left school at 16 and gone straight into the chefing world and become incredibly successful and it it just was very interesting to me to get to meet people and hear how they got to where they were a lot of chefs have some fascinating backstories so and I think also maybe where I grew up and not growing up in England the idea that I could talk to people who were maybe from Southeast Asia and hear about their cooking and hear from people from other parts of the world and not just people who were born and raised in, in the UK. I thought that was, you, you get to meet all these amazing people and that was just really interesting and exciting for me over a lot of other things that I'd written about before. So I think it was, yeah, always the people that drew me into it really. And obviously, you know, the nice restaurants and getting to go out to nice meals and things like that. So I'd say the people really, really pulled me into this, into, into that writing at the time, writing about chefs and restaurants. Uh, yes, I totally agree with you, especially on the front. Of, and I hope, you know, students are listening to this and you say it because that also was my experience that at university and that they would you would think that during career days they would have all different kinds forget it i mean right. we're talking the 80s for me it was banking mm -hmm. a billion banks and law yeah and that was pretty much it and i thought you know i also funnily wanted to be an actress i also worked in film oh. production a little that that i wish they had i wish that someone from a drinks brand 
had mm-hmm. come to my university to talk yeah. because maybe I would have jumped in sooner yeah. because, you know, also the it's about the people and meeting the people. And I feel the same as you do. And, and I love it. But yeah, that, you know, you don't think as a student that there are as many opportunities as there are if you go to like a normal university and you don't have life life experience yeah. or just university experience. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's something that I'm, we'll, we'll get to it later, but it's something that through one of the pieces of work that I do and one of the projects that I work on, that is something that I'm really keen to be involved in going into universities or sixth form colleges and just explaining that there's a whole other world out there that can allow you to travel, meet incredible people, have once in a lifetime experiences in the in, in the drinks industry. And that's something that I'm, I'm very passionate about. And it, it comes from that very thing of being told that there were only five jobs that you could have in this entire world. And that's the only way to make money. And then you've got to buy a house and have a have a car and blah, 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 and you know all those things that you get taught are how that's what you must do. And I just thought, no, sod it, I don't want to do that, do any of that. <laughs> Luckily, it worked out. I know, and it really surprises me. Yeah, because I went to school in the eighties, and they had that. Mm-hmm. To hear that, even so much later, yeah. yeah, you know, we we still haven't moved on as universities no, to I, introduce kids exactly. to all different other things to do in the world. I know it's crazy. Now, when did you start? thinking, wait, wait, it's drinks. These The drink stories are just as cool maybe as the food stories or tr- morphing more into yeah. being a spirits or drinks. Yeah. So after the Good Food Guide, I moved to a company called Square Meal and I was there for about six years. And in that office at the time, they owned the brand, but they also owned another brand, which some people listening to this might have heard of called Imbibe, Imbibe Magazine from the UK. And we shared the same office and I'd be sort of writing away. I also, I was on the editorial team for the venues and events side. So I wrote a lot of weddings, Christmas parties, VIP experiences at festivals and things like that, which were always sponsored usually by a drinks brand. But I was there to talk about the food or the experience, but there was always that in the background. But we shared an office with the Imbibe team and I'd just be sort of working away and I'd always just be way more interested in what was going on behind me, hearing the bottles clinking and they were doing tastings in the boardroom and they'd leave the bottles there for other people in the office to try. And I just, after I was there for six, seven years and after about four years or so, I just sort of started thinking, okay, this is interesting, but what those guys are doing looked way more fun. And I started doing some of my WSCT courses I started with the wine ones, but I'm absolutely rubbish at geography and very quickly realized that if you want to know about wine, you kind of need to know where things are in the world. So I sort of moved slightly away from that and started having a think about the spirit side of things. And then they they left the business and were taken on by someone else. And when they they'd moved, the editor got in touch with me, who I got on with very well, and just sort of said look, you've been here for a while. Would you, would you fancy joining the Imbibe team? And I said, yes. And that was, that was it. And then that was, you know, only four or five years ago, really. So I haven't been in the industry that long, but that was a complete baptism of fire, just straight into a very well-respected magazine and exhibition. And that was really the very beginning of my proper drinks writing journey. And 
yes, I am so glad that I I made the move. I, I was happy at my meal. I was very happy with what I was doing, but I was in my late 20s and it, it got to that stage and I just thought, you know what, it's time to have a bit of a change. And I'd always been interested in the drink side of things. So that was it. Beginning of beginning of the next sort of very big chapter of my life. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity. I think that that's where, uh, when I started mm. the podcast ages ago, that's where I first remember hearing your name mm. is attached to imbibe mm. she's the imbibe person yeah. yes you know, yeah like, i yeah tattooed on you was it you were imbibe yeah. definitely yeah out and about a lot i came in as the managing editor so yeah i i'd made my way up from editorial assistant at square meal to associate editor and then moved into the managing editor role at imbibe and which basically means that i'm i kind of oversee everything if anyone doesn't know what a managing editor does you oversee production make sure everything's running smoothly, you talk to the commercial team, you're very much there as the pair of hands that keeps the show running and everyone else is kind of dipping in and out and making sure that, you know, the show sounds right and looks right and I'm just making sure that it gets from A to B. So that was the role that I did. And But it was strange coming in in a relatively senior role as a complete newbie to the industry. So it was a massive, massive learning curve and as we know, this industry is very close. Everyone knows everyone. And so getting to, getting my head around that was was really quite full on. But it very quickly I was welcomed in by the by the industry and everyone has been so lovely and welcoming and I've got some great friends now in this industry, which is hard to believe, sort of not even having been in it for that long. So it's it's fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's quite a close community. Yeah. I agree. Now from pure writer to managing editor, did you feel that you missed writing? Were you writing? Or should I ask first? Were you writing? And did you, if you weren't, did you miss it? And did you, is that why you were like, oh, you know what? I want to write more. Yeah. So I think not many people realize that the further up you get in a publication in your role, the less you do of the things that you came into the job to do. So you start you go, I want to work for a magazine. So you go in because you love writing and you want to be out and about and doing all the fun stuff. The higher up the food chain you get, the less writing you do. It's not about you anymore. You start having way less bylines that you used to have. You don't get invited to as many things anymore just because you can't write about them because you're too busy, you know, signing off invoices for freelancers and all the, all the admin stuff. And I did get to a state. I loved I loved being at Imbibe. It was absolutely fantastic. And I had a great team. But it can get to the stage where you just think, God, I've spent my whole day doing admin for the finance team or for this or whatever. And that's the same in most public, in pretty much every publication. And I'm not doing any writing anymore. I feel like I'm so far away from the subject that I came into yeah. this job to talk about that, you know, it's a real detriment. And me going freelance was it not of my own sort of volition. I got, I was made redundant at the end of 2020. Obviously the pandemic had a huge impact and imbibe closed down from an editorial point of view. And it was right. very scary, but I'd had always had the idea of freelance in the back of my mind because I did want to do a lot more writing. I just thought maybe it would be five years down the line rather than, you know, at Christmas and the middle of a global pandemic. So I was very much right, forced into the into the situation of being freelance, but I have to say I don't think I've written as much in my entire career as I've written in the last two, three years. It's been 
absolutely insane. And just trying to get that muscle memory back at the beginning was quite a challenge. I was like, oh my gosh, I thought I was good at this. And then very slowly, <laughs> kind of now, I, I think I worked out, I wrote something like 150 features last year, which is something stupid, like one every three days, which isn't sustainable. But that volume of writing I haven't done since I was oh. 20, 22. I haven't done that volume of writing for 10 years. Yeah, eight to 10 years. So going back to doing that was pretty full on. And it was weird to have to re almost relearn a skill slightly as well. Because also when you're higher up and you're a managing editor, you write the kind of nice big features, you know, the kind of top line features. Whereas I was going back to writing, you know, list, top 10 this, top 10 that. Um, I hadn't done that for so long. And I really enjoyed doing stuff like that. So yeah, just going back to having to do those sorts of things again was really tricky, but I've it it made me just fall in love with why I started in this career in the first place, which was always to do with the writing and interviewing people and talking to people. And it, it it's it was a kind of blessing in disguise. I kind of always say, if anyone gets made redundant, I always say it's the best thing that will ever happen to you because it will make you reevaluate. Being forced into that situation will make you reevaluate right. what you do and why you do it. And sometimes, yeah, you, obviously it's sad, but other times you could go, oh my gosh, I haven't done this for 10 years and I love doing that. That's the whole reason I started in this career and make you go back to go back to it, which is luckily what I've managed to do. So yeah, it's kind of full circle, really. I've kind of gone back to gone back to writing as much as I used to when I was in my early 20s, which is which is fantastic. I love it. Very lucky. With the amount of so much writing, let me tell you, oh, I can't even imagine writing that much. You must have been exhausted yeah. most of the time. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> writing so much for kind of such a compact bit of time. Did you find that there were certain pieces and stories or kinds of stories that you say, you know what, this is what I love to write. These are the 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 bits that I want to keep pursuing writing? Or was it all the different ups and downs that you enjoyed? Like first a top 10, then a story about a bartender, and then another story about a distiller, then another top 10 list? Yeah, I like, I've, I've kind of found that over the first year, to be honest, was a kind of whatever anyone will give me, I need to earn a living. So I took on everything and I was very lucky to be given a lot of opportunities to write a lot of different types of pieces, which was fantastic. And I found over the last year or so, I, I've always had an eye and I think it's because I'm relatively new to the industry. So I haven't been entrenched in it for too long. And it means that when I look at a product or a category, I always want to know more about the things that haven't been written about it. So looking at a category from a different point of view, I wrote something on the importance of fat in agave sustainability and looking at whiskey that's made in non-traditional whiskey making market or looking at someone who works in a distillery whose job you role you've never heard of. And I've definitely found that over the last year or so, it's those pieces that require quite a bit of research but are also relatively niche and maybe a bit of a left field or kind of sidestep to actually the main topic. I always found that far more interesting than kind of writing mm -hmm. 
sometimes the same thing that's been written before, but in a slightly different way and in my own voice. So I'm also someone who doesn't write a lot in my own voice. I, I look at myself more as the observer and I let other people talk and I try and communicate that. So being able to do those research topics and talk to people who have researched these subjects for their entire careers for me is far more interesting than me putting my opinion on something because I've only been doing this for a certain number of years you know I don't have that authority so those pieces where you know you'll talk to um, an anthropologist about something to, and I thought when would I be interviewing an anthropologist about something to do with tequila or something yeah. like that and but actually there's a huge connection and it talking to those people that I find I've think I'm starting to carve out a bit more for myself in terms of the type of content that I'm, that I'm writing and that I'm interested in. And I'm lucky that I have got some other projects that I do as well, which means that I don't have to write that many articles every single year because that, that was kind of peak burnout for me. It was, it was far too much, but you know, writing doesn't really pay the bills. So you kind of have to think outside the box a little bit sometimes. So yeah, I think that's where, where my love, my, my kind of interest lies in those untold stories and the the stories that you might not think you could ever read about to do with drinks that's kind of where i like to i like to play around a little bit more and that's why you're an award winner <laughs> so <laughs> i know about that <laughs> yes that's why you've won several awards now were these like the the one from spirits business mm -hmm. the alan lodge award did you know those were coming or was it a surprise to you yeah so the the Alan Lodge one is something that I've coveted for a long time I think the the reason it exists is very important and I just thought you know what I'm not going to be eligible for this for much longer because I'm <laughs> I'm 32 so I thought you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna apply for it but I had absolutely no inkling that I would win it because there are so many incredible writers out there. So that was a real surprise. And the IWC award that I won, mm -hmm. that was really special as well. I was nominated for that in not, not in a million years would I have applied for that. I wouldn't apply for that now. I probably wouldn't have applied for it in four or five years time. So for someone to nominate me forced me to kind of, they said, oh, put an application in. So I did that. And then that was just a complete yeah, completely out mm -hmm. of the blue. Wasn't like expecting it at all. But it was at the end of a very tricky first year of freelancing. I think it definitely gave me gave me a boost. It put me on the radar of people who didn't know about me. And I think, you know, I always say things like, Oh, I just wanna, you know, write my silly little pieces about cocktails and, you know, just have fun and blah blah blah. But I think it really cemented my mind in the fact that okay actually maybe you are maybe you, you do know what you're talking about and maybe you're good at that you know age-old uh, classic imposter syndrome that had a massive impact on kind of quieting down those voices which I think were there quite a lot early on in my freelance career so yeah I've, I've been very lucky and the the kind of pieces I've submitted for those were the ones which were a bit more left field or looking at a category in a different light and things like that. So I sort of thought, okay, cool. That seems to be, that seems to be working for me. So I'm going to continue down that path. But yeah, I'm very, very grateful for, for the judges and everything for, for those awards because it's also opened up a lot of new people to me who've contacted me who they've seen that I've won those awards and they maybe wouldn't have done if I hadn't. So yeah, 
I, I would say if you are if you are a journalist or a writer or you do any sort of communication, I would always say I never would have applied for those awards, but apply for them because you never know. If people haven't heard of you, you don't know who the judges are, just apply for them. You've got nothing to lose, absolutely nothing to lose. And it can make such a huge impact on on your career and it has on mine. So yes, always urge people to believe in themselves, put yourself forward. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And now about putting yourself forward, mm. you said that you also work on many other different things. Mm. And one of them is talking to students about writing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, and some of the other things that you haven't brought up? Yeah, of course. So I do some work for the Our Whiskey Foundation, which was launched a year ago by Becky Paskin, who is um, an award-winning journalist. She was at scotchwhiskey.com. She's worked at lots of other drinks trade publications, and she launched the foundation last year to help recognize and support and empower women working in the whiskey industry. So I'm the head of content and I also look after the mentor program. So we've brought in, we've kind of put a hundred women globally through the mentor program already in the last year. And we're going to be doing another 50 in the second half of this year. And we are basically working to help women realize that this industry is for them as well. Uh, I think there's a lot in terms of marketing and media representation of the whiskey industry that doesn't necessarily recognize or give women the opportunity to see that they could work in it or be if, be a whiskey lover or even think about buying a bottle of whiskey in a shop. So what I would love to do is, you know, I went to an all-girls school in Surrey. They never told us all these different things that we could do for a living. So I would love at some stage to, you know, you can do those which I always thought were really cringe, those alumni sort of chats. And I remember when I used to sit and listen to people do them, I was like, oh God, can't believe I'm having to sit through this. But I'd like to think that if I turned up and sort of said, right, he wants to work in the whiskey industry, it might be a bit more interesting than some of the things they've been told on their career sort of coaching schedule. So yeah, for us, it's very much about looking after and supporting the women who already work in the industry. And there are so many women who work in the industry and women who work in top jobs in the industry as well. But we also really want to get more women through into the industry as well. So a big part of what we do with the mental program and what I'd quite like to do moving forward is is making more women realize that it's an industry that would be more than happy to have them. It's a fantastic industry and you can come at it from all angles, bartender, brand ambassador, making whiskey as well. The women who work in sciences or who are interested in those, those kinds of subjects, there's plenty of positions for them for distilling, lending, all those sorts of incredible jobs. So that's something that I'm very passionate about. And I'm very lucky that Becky asked me to be involved in that. So very much a kind of our Whiskey Foundation ambassador in that respect. I also do a bit of consulting for a couple of people as well, sort of brands who maybe want a bit of guidance in how does PR work? How does journalism work? What branding's good? What branding isn't? That's those sorts of things. I think, you know, you'll know when you get about 30 40 press releases a day all with different products and you very quickly begin to realize which ones you're like okay that's good that's not good that's a good press release that isn't you know all those sorts of things so I do a bit of work for a few of those people just to help them in that very beginning stage and then sort of move them so they're ready to 
to start, maybe if they're about to launch a product. I also am freelancing as a consultant editor for Campari Academy. So working with Monica on that. So again, kind of a bit more like my managing editor role. I help get all the content together, make sure everything's running smoothly because we're producing a lot of content on, on the website. So I sort of help with all of the production side of that from my my old days as a managing editor, which I actually, you know, grass is always greener. I was writing loads as a freelancer. Right. I was like, God, I really miss the uh, <laughs> I really miss the production side of things. <laughs> it uses a completely different side of your brain. And I love all of that side of it. I'm a bit of a, not a control freak, but I'm quite organized and I like things to work a certain way. So seeing a piece of copy move from one folder into another folder and all the images come in and just having it off. Oh, beautiful, beautiful stuff. So yeah, I do that for me <laughs> as well. So yeah, I kind of, it's nice. I, the 70% of what I do is writing. Uh, I'm sometimes presenting and hosting panels and things like that, very much the journalist side of things. And then the Campari Academy and working on the Our Whiskey Foundation take up pretty much the rest of my time, if not more. So yeah, I'm definitely yet to find the freelance balance of not not working at all all hours under the sun, but it's very difficult when you're personally interested in what you work in as well. It's quite difficult to shut. But I'm sure as you know, it's very difficult to shut that side of your brain off because you're kind of constantly seeing things. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I wonder what that's like. Or walking past shops and seeing what's in the window, what bottles people have got, bars. You know, it's it's one of those jobs where I just think you'll you'll you work it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But if you love it, you know, you can't complain because it's uh, it's fantastic to get to work in this industry. So yes, a lot of things going on at the moment. A hundred percent. Oh my goodness. No, I know. I agree with all of that as well as, you know, my, I, I have a billion, I'm sure as you, you do, you know, a million bottles of alcohol oh my God. sent to me. And my mother was going through Dublin airport and I was like, there's a spirit I want to try that you can only get there. And she's like, but you have so many. I know, but I just couldn't help myself. I know. And even my boyfriend was like, really? We need another bottle? I was like, but I wanted to try it because I heard the story of so it. So hard. I live, I live in Borough. I was very happy when the Whiskey Exchange opened on Borough High Street, but I was also devastated because I was like, I don't need any more. And every time, it's just like walking into heaven. Every time I walk in, I always come out with something and I come home and my yeah, my boyfriend's like, right, cool. So where's that? Where's that going to go? And I'm like, I don't have no idea. But it's one of those. Yeah, I just think, yeah, when you're passionate yeah. about something, it's impossible to not, yeah, you know, walk through duty free and have a have a quick look on the shelves. And yeah, it's it's very difficult. I always say it's it's good that I've got so many bottles in my house that are relatively full rather than empty. So there's that balance as well. Ooh. So it's always yes, I like that. Yeah, I'm going to use that. Yeah. It's good for the delivery man as well, because he's started to have questions, I think, about what I do. Because <laughs> he seems to be delivering, the same man delivering me a bottle of something every day. It's for work. It's for work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I usually ask for the top tips for the home bartender, which, of course, if you have one, that's fantastic. I don't know if you are a home bartender, but I also would love to know the top tip for someone who might want to be a drinks journalist or start writing about drinks. Yes, of course. Well, my my go-to home bartending tip very quickly is just always have ice in your freezer. Never have a iceless freezer because you never know when you're, and always have a glass in the freezer as well. 
because you never know when that emergency martini might need to be made. But yeah, for anyone wanting to go into drinks journalism, if you do come from a journalism background, I would start looking at how you can just educate yourself on spirits or wine or beer, whichever one you want to focus on or all of them. I would say that unlike a lot of other industries that you can work in as a journalist, specifically maybe in the hospitality industry, knowing about your subject matter from a very technical point of view, I think is really important. So I, you know, done my WSCTs and things like that. So that education piece, I think if you've already got the journalism down, start learning about the subject matter, make sure that you're going out to bars, talking to people and just making sure that you're doing as much networking as possible. I found that I've still got PRs that I talk to that I used to talk to 10 years ago that I still talk to now, but they've moved around so many different places. I've moved around a lot, but people don't usually leave the kind of hospitality space from a sort of professional point of view. So if you can make those contacts early on, chances are you'll still know them in 10, 15, 20 years time. So try and get those connections down and your life will be a lot easier. But I'd say if you don't come from a journalism background, but you really want to write about drinks, I would do some training if you can in writing. Read as much as possible. Read as much about drinks as you possibly can from magazines, from websites, and just write. Even if you don't have an outlet for them, you know, anyone can have a Substack these days. You know, know, it was way easier when I first started. I don't think MailChimp was even on my radar, but you can, you can set up a Substack really quickly and it's cheap and just set that up and you can write anything you want in there and look at that as your portfolio because Having a portfolio is really important now. I think that there's quite a bit of competition in this industry. And I think if you have the body of work that you can show an editor, show a valid interest in the industry and show that you can write, then it's kind of an easy option for them to commission you. But if you don't have anything to show them, then you're just another person who wants to write about drinks and their budgets are tight. You know, I don't think, I don't think magazines have paid journalists any more than they used to when I first started. So budgets are tight. People have not much money to spend on freelance. So they need to know that the money they spend is well spent. So have a think about that. And then also just if you want to move into a publication, just understand who works there. Who's the editor? You know, who's the features editor? Follow them on Instagram. Join up with them on LinkedIn. I always say when I first sort of started, I was really annoying. I just message people all the time. Hi, have you got any budget? No. Okay, cool. Do you know any will? No. Okay, leave it a couple of months. Hi, it's me again. The worst thing someone says to you is, go away. And if you never meet them, that's fine. Like, doesn't matter. But there were so many occasions where I did that. And then suddenly someone said, oh, yeah, we, I just got given budget sign off, actually. Cool. Can you do something on this? Or I saw them at an event and they were like, oh, you're Millie. Yes, I have heard from you because we were talking on LinkedIn. Oh, great. Cool. Nice to finally meet you. It's just, just drop them a message. I've never replied rudely to someone who's dropped me a message on LinkedIn. I've always either gone back to them or I've remembered who they are if I've seen them. So just try and get your name out there and people will. People do want to help in this industry. I think it's probably the most generous industry that I've ever kind of heard of or worked in. People do really want to help. And I would also say just from a really boring point of view, maybe do a couple of courses on copywriting or get familiar with media law, things like that. A lot of jobs now, they need you to have that requirement. If you want to work for a newspaper, that's kind of 
it's something that is a requirement if you're going to write for them. So just think of all the fun things that you want to do, one that you want to write about, but also think, right, what, what are the core things that I need to understand before I can sort of be taken seriously? And I think if you've got all of those tools in your belt, you know, and passion, you know, well, to your oyster, go for it. That's a big keep, one. Keep not, yeah, just keep, keep knocking, keep knocking on doors because eventually someone, I promise someone will answer or drop me a line. I'm always happy. I'm on Instagram. Drop me a line. I'm always happy to give advice and guidance. Like that's not a problem at all. Happy to help where I can. Oh, that's, that's super generous of you. And I'm just going to add one thing. I actually got my first commission in a travel writing class. I pitched something to a, like Amazing. a visiting editor. And so, so listen to her. Yeah. When Millie says do that, even in a class, yeah. you can get it. And it was for the mail. It was for the mail on Sunday. Yeah. So, right. you know, you it, that can happen yeah. even in a travel writing class. Yeah, exactly. Put yourself in the position to get noticed and get recognized. If you don't contact people and you don't, you don't do that. Like, why would anyone? Why would anyone sort of take you on? So it's just put yourself in the right position because. People, right. people come to you. Definitely. Definitely. Now, I asked you before for your cocktail of the week suggestion and you gave it to me and it wasn't just, oh, a gin martini or this or that, even though it wasn't, even though it wasn't, mm-hmm. a, mm-hmm. I, I should say it was a gin martini, but it wasn't just a, a run of the mill gin martini, should I say, or a generic. You were very specific about the ingredients. And I was wondering why you chose those and, and why that was your drink your favorite drink of the moment yeah so i chose is it yeah it is a gin martini five to one but i do play around with the ratios dependent on the time of day and blah 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 but it's using garden swift gin from capriotis distillery people who know of capriotis will know them very well for their eau de vie which are absolutely fantastic i say they it's mainly barney who is the the man behind these incredible liquids and he made this gin which i believe was whiskey exchange gin of the year a couple of years ago and dry vermouth, lolly prat, dolin, whatever you want to have really, with a garnish of citizens of soil, olive oil on top. And it came about because it was that year where I wrote a ridiculous amount of features. And I think it was a Friday night at something like 5pm. It was in lockdown. And I bought a bottle of the gin. I had the vermouth lying around and I'd just been sent the oil as a sort of press sample. Or I bought it or something like that. They just launched it and I thought I'm just going to buy it because we were in lockdown. And I thought, you know, why not? I can play around with it. And it was five o'clock, but I still had an entire feature to write. And I had to find it by the end of that day. And I was like, I really want a drink. But I'm only going to have one drink because I need to write this feature. And I had the bottle of Garden Swift on my desk. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to just make a martini with this. And I made it in this kind of tiny, those little Hendrix, tiny martini glasses. And I love savory. I don't have a sweet tooth or anything. So I've usually always gone for an olive with my martini, but I didn't have any because we were in lockdown. I hadn't gone shopping. So I thought I'd just pop a bit of the olive oil on top. And I made it and it was just absolutely delicious. And it probably lasted longer than a lot of other martinis that I've drunk just because it was just fantastic. The the gin is, it goes kind of slightly misty as well when you make all the oils that are in there. It's quite a, I would say, relatively savory gin. And then with the olive oil on top, because the texture was incredible. And I posted it on Instagram and someone else messaged me and said, I've literally just made the exact same thing because I'd done the same as well. They were another journalist and we were kind of in the same circle. And then I'd obviously tagged Capriotis in it. And then I think it was the next day, 
they made it and posted it on their Instagram. And people were going wild for it, messaging for the specs and everything. And yeah, it's just been one of those cocktails that came out of pure necessity. You know, I needed a drink, but I had to do more writing. I was like, story of my life. I always need to do more writing, but I'm going to have something that helps me get over the fact that I can't, you know, go out and go to a bar. And that cocktail just provided exactly what I needed in that moment. A bit of bit of a kick, absolutely delicious. And using a brand who I've who I absolutely love as well, Capriotis, if you haven't heard of them, look them up. They're based in the Cotswolds. And to this day, that is my go-to martini spec now. That's that's what I drink now. That's my that's my house martini. And it's yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. So if anyone ever asks me, I'm always very aware that, you know, I don't want to be a cliche and say, oh, Mar- oh, Jim Martini. But I like to think that this one is a little bit different to maybe some of the other ones that you can try out there. So yeah, give it a go. I would definitely recommend it. Oh, well, it looked fantastic. <laughs> and so, and you're describing it makes me want to have one right now, even though it's lunchtime. It's fine. All the, yes, it's fine. It's fine. It's five o'clock yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Now, I always leave asking, and I know you've just talked about a cocktail, but I would be remiss not to ask you if you could have any drink anywhere right now, where would it be and what would that be? So this is a bit controversial probably because at this moment in time, it probably wouldn't be a cocktail. But my my brother lives in Vietnam and I obviously having grown up in that part of the world, I go back to visit him quite a bit. He lived in Hong Kong before that. So he's made the move back to that side of the world. And one of my best memories of the last time I visited him last year in Vietnam, they do beers where they have ice in them because it's so hot. So you're kind of meant to have a sessionable beer when you're drinking. And my best memory is just sat outside on one of those tiny little plastic stalls, watching the world go by in Hanoi, drinking an iced beer. And it's one. Of, it was one of those things. It's so simple. It's not, you know, you can buy the beers on the street corner for not much money, you know, a couple of quid. But there's just something about that combination of drinking that and watching the world go by in somewhere like Hanoi or or Saigon, which is just so special. And it's something that would feel very different if I sat on a plastic chair in a park in, in, in Borough, drinking a beer with a couple of cubes of ice in it. And I think the reason why when you sort of said that was a question I'd listened to the podcast before I knew that was a question that would come up. I was like, okay, what really like esoteric, really like wanky cocktail to like come back with. And I thought, do you know what? I just love a nice beer sat on a stool in Vietnam. And I think that it epitomizes why I love this industry because it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Like you can have an experience somewhere in the world and it just can take you straight back there. And that's for me what drinks can do. You know, a martini always kind of brings me straight back to London and a nice cold beer takes me straight back to Vietnam. So that is what I would... If I was there now, I'd be having one of those outside in the heat. Be very nice. Well, I I think that's why I asked the question, because actually most people say something that is really personal to them. And I think it just, I don't know, it it makes me feel like I know them a little bit more. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. exactly. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been so great to have you on and to learn how you got where you did. And I hope I'm sure people will be both influenced and inspired by what you've done and your success. So I will see you at the bar, definitely. 
Yes, thank you so much for having me. This has been the dream way to spend an hour on a on a Thursday. So thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. And yes, I will see you at the bar for maybe a martini or a beer. Either one is fine by Anything. me. I, hopefully in <laughs> Vietnam, having that beer, I'd love to be there too. Yeah, let's do it. Let's try and get that sorted. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. I want to thank Millie for being on the program. It was such a delight to finally hear her story. Our cocktail of the week is very specific. And as you heard, the one Millie invented herself during lockdown. Our cocktail of the week is the Savory Martini, made with Capriolis Garden Swift Gin. Just add five parts of Capriolis Garden Swift Gin and one part of Noli Pratt or any dry vermouth to a mixing glass. Add ice and then stir, stir, stir. Then strain it into a martini glass and garnish with citizens of soil olive oil. Cheers! You'll find this recipe, more gin martini cocktail recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll also find some of the ingredients in our shop. Millie has so inspired me to write, write, write. If anyone has any questions about drinks blogging, find me on Instagram at at a lush life manual. If you live for Lush Life, then make sure you head out to the bars you love and order a drink. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. On the next show, we will be chatting with a fifth-generation Louisianian who took the reins of her family's rum distillery during lockdown and has never looked back. I promise. Until that time, bottoms up.